0: You are listening to the Tech Chef Podcast. This is episode number 64, November 15th, 2022.
1: Hi, this is Bob Gibson, and you're listening to Skip on the Tech Chef Podcast. Off-premise strategy. Business continuity. How about a taste test of restaurant technology? drive through or curbside, mobile apps or AI. It's all on the menu. Cooking up for the day. It's a recipe for success. You're in good hands with the tech chef. Make a plan to be your best. Strategize with the tech chef.
0: Welcome to The Tech Chef. This is your host, Skip Kimple. If you are looking for ways to improve your restaurant, hotel, or hospitality business, this podcast is the perfect show for you. Every week, we talk to industry leaders about the latest technology solutions and techniques that can help you run your business more efficiently. You'll learn everything about the latest and greatest technology trends and tools. There's something for everyone on this show. You'll be able to take your business to the next level as we provide valuable information that will help you make informed decisions about technology solutions for your company. Tune in every single week for a new episode. It's sure to be packed with information that will benefit you and your team. Make sure that you hit the subscribe button to this show right now in your favorite podcast app. This week, I am here at the Restaurant Finance and Development Conference and at the Digital Signage Expo in Las Vegas. If you are currently at RFDC and are listening to this show tomorrow, Wednesday, make sure you stick around in the morning and sign up and join the Technology Boot Camp where Zarek Pearson, Galen Collins, and myself will be teaching on various areas of technology in the restaurant industry. Get your certification while you're there, and it's for free. Also, later in the day tomorrow... I will be speaking at the University of Las Vegas Hospitality College to talk with the students there on restaurant and hotel technology. This is gonna be a blast and I'm really looking forward to that. I know this show was supposed to go live last week, but we had to jump on the recap of Murtech, and I promise you, this week's show was well worth the wait. As previously mentioned, living on the operator side for most of my life, I had a very defined methodology for maintaining vendor relationships. I would say they were more partnerships than anything. When you engage with a vendor, you need to have buy-in from both sides and you have to be willing to work together to make it a fruitful and long-lasting relationship. But what does that really mean? What do vendors think of us? Well, my guest for today's conversation is none other than Bob Gibson, who is a seasoned veteran supporting global enterprise customers with complex franchise or franchisee models building out go-to-market strategies to support these relationships with the hospitality, retail, and technology experience. With over 30 plus years, Bob is a veteran who understands how to build systems to reduce churn while helping overall revenue growth and increasing net revenue retention. His areas of expertise include, but are not limited to, strategic selling models, go-to-market strategies, customer service team building, support desk building, and thought leadership. He has over 20 years of experience on the point of sale side alone and served in leadership roles at Micros and Oracle, as well as Jolt. Bob now serves as the president and chief operating officer at the Constrata Group that continues to shape the technology industry in the hospitality, food, and beverage space. Joining me today, we have the infamous Mr. Bob Gibson. Bob, many people know who you are because you've been in the industry for a while. Tell us where you came from and kind of
1: your, your background and your experience. Sure. Well, um, infamous means I've been around a long time, I guess. So um, I actually started in the restaurant business when I was 14 years old, washing dishes. Um, I spent uh, almost 10 years um Uh, from that point on really working in different areas of restaurants so I did uh, short order line cook I waited I bartended um, quick serve full-service kind of the whole kit and caboodle all the way through college Um, and then I joined uh, the tech industry and started with a company called digital dining point of sale system so started in uh, actually 1990 as one of the first dealers selling point-of-sale systems in uh, New England. I did that for a period of time uh, and then uh, joined a company called Boston ECR where we were the uh, cash register uh, provider for companies like Dunkin' Donuts and um, Sodesco and various other uh, uh, entities out there. We had Casio, we had Sharp, we had Digital Dining, we had a a POS product called Comtrax, We also did uh, retail with liquor store and um, uh, also retail C-stores. So quite a background going into uh, the 2000s where um, at that point I actually missed the restaurant business. So I went and opened a couple of restaurants. You did? I did. I did not know that. I did. In 1998 through about 2001, uh, we had two restaurants. One was a restaurant called Cuvée up in Salem, Mass. And the other one was called uh, Jackrabbit Flats in Ipswich. Um, realized why I wanted to be in the technology side of the business and and moved on from that and joined Micros uh, in 2001. Um, from there, I spent a lot of time uh, on the uh, services side of the business, uh, running implementation teams and uh, service techs, and then jumped into the operations side where I, um, I ran the Chicago district office. Went on to become the regional uh, VP uh, in the Midwest, went on to global sales with um, Hyatt, uh, working through um, both POS and property management systems, and then eventually um, joined Jolt as the chief revenue officer for almost three years, and now um, at Constrator and uh, loving it as the president and chief operating officer.
0: Yes, and my boss. (laughs) And your
1: boss. (laughs) We'll talk about that a little bit later on. Uh, Talk about JOLD for a second. What does JOLD do? So JOLD is a digital food safety platform. Um, It does more than that. It does have a uh, HR component to it with time and attendance and labor management. Um, But really cutting edge uh, in digital food safety, task management, uh, one of the first companies to um, uh, really get into that marketplace um, and I think it's it's really um, a product that's going to take off in the future and has a lot of uh, possibility, especially as you integrate into some of the um, third party applications like point of sale systems or like um, inventory control systems. Um, it's a nice uh, fits in a nice niche market where um, we have global we had global presence when I was there, and uh, we had some really great expansion.
0: I was also thinking back, at, uh, micros and Oracle for a very long time. So you probably know where all the bodies are buried there. I might know a couple. (laughs) So today's discussion is all about vendors and vendor relationships. I've always been on the operator side. So I have a very specific viewpoint of how my relationship is with a vendor. I want them to be a partner. I don't want them just to be somebody I pay to provide a service. I really want that vested interest from both sides. How from the vendor side of things, is is that how a vendor is also looking at a relationship, or are you guys
1: just looking at us dollars and cents? <laughs> no, absolutely. The best relationships are the strategic relationships. And I think one of when as I look back over my career and I have multiple customers that I still work with today, even though I'm not with Microsoft Oracle, but you know, the phone still rings to get, you know, advice and and uh, help and I think it's really that consulting part of it um, being both an operator and a vendor I know that the value that someone brings to the table is really more in their knowledge and their um, understanding of how best to implement what those best practices are um, you can have the best piece of software in the world that does amazing things but if the team that's doing it is only a transactional mindset, and they're just thinking about you know, a quick hit and I'm never going to you know, make any money again. The relationship's not going to work. You really have to make sure that um, the customer is getting the value and the benefit of the product that you're providing for them and that they understand that you're there um, and you're an expert in what you do. And really, that relationship becomes really important. So
0: you've seen a lot of vendors out there. how many how many of them do you think are really have that transactional mindset instead of the relationship mindset?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I would say the best way to uh, kind of gauge that is go to the NRA every year. You'll see 30, 40 new um, startup um, software companies uh, and the next year you'll see 30 new ones. <laughs> and a lot of it is because they're they're more transactional mindset. They're not in it really or they don't know how to be in it for the long run. And they're just trying to really um, uh, get a quick hit, right? Mm-hmm. And um, relationships are built over a long period of time. And part of that relationship is really building trust. And when folks can trust you and understand that you're gonna be there for them, you get a long-term relationship. And, and I think that, um, that applies to a lot of the vendors out there that have been around for a long time. They've got loyal customers, they've got raving fans, and they've really done a nice job uh, creating those relationships and those values.
0: Well, certainly in our industry, too, the industry is way too small to screw up. It I mean, really is. And, you know, people move positions and people do not forget faces and how they were treated. Yep. Um, it's it's a very common thing out there. Now, one of the negative experiences I've had from a, from a vendor side, and this this was not in the food industry, it was in the retail side, we had a very, very large ERP system that we were working with, um, and they came in, and we insisted that they demonstrate all these particular you know, pieces and components. Uh, during the presentation that they're giving us, they said, well, give us a day. We'll come back and show it to you tomorrow. So they had sales engineers, who knows how many <laughs> sales engineers on the other side that whipped up some solution in the background and presented it the next day. And we found out later on that how much effort it took to actually create that solution that we wanted to see. And of yep. course, that company wanted to charge us if we actually wanted that component, sure. um, which ended up costing millions of dollars by the time we were finished with it. But our sales engineers, uh, are, are they a benefit? Are they keeping your salesperson honest? You know, how does that process work? It, it seems to me a sales engineer is a good thing to have in a process as you're looking at a vendor, especially if it's a very
1: technical product. Sure. Um, I, I think they're crucial in the process, but sometimes the best sale you get is the one you don't get. <laughs> and that means you know you, you really have to understand the value and the benefit for both you and the customer, and it really does have to be a win-win. Um, if you're going into and you're trying to Frankenstein your software to win a deal, you're already making a mistake. If there's a ton of customization you need to do to get that sale, it's probably going to end in disaster with both companies not being happy with each other. Um, I learned a long time ago to walk away from those type of deals. And, you know, to me, what you really have to think about is the long term, right? So you can you can Frankenstein a software product to work for you today but what happens when there's a version upgrade what happens when a third party that you integrate has a version upgrade if you're not kind of thinking what that five-year life cycle looks like and you're not considering all the factors that go into a successful uh, install and a successful relationship you're just making a mistake out of the gate and at the end of the day it just costs everyone a lot of money which makes absolutely no sense to me So here's another personal question. I once had a
0: boss that told me they didn't like my uh, relationships with the vendors because I have a, to this day, I have relationship with vendors. When I see them at conferences, like you said, they'll they'll call you up. They'll they'll just pick your brain. Um, It's a friendship almost. And I had a boss that hated that, and they felt the only way to get something done with
1: a vendor was to yell and scream at them. (laughs) How do you like working with those kind of customers? And does that actually work? Yeah, I'm a big believer in firing customers that like to yell and scream at you. Ah, that was going to be one of my questions. Have you ever fired a customer before? I've fired a lot of customers in my career. (laughs) (laughs) And I've returned money to uh, some customers that it wasn't a bad relationship. But, you know, when we were probably the biggest one was a Chicago customer, really well-known restaurant group. And we were six months into the relationship and realized that we couldn't deliver on a key part of what the customer needed and instead of continuing down the path of of creating a bad relationship we did just the opposite we returned the customers money we helped them transition to a system that could do what they wanted to do and I can tell you to this day it's it's a it's a group that um, I think will give me a, a great reference tomorrow if I needed it so they appreciated um, the effort appreciate the effort yeah and the honesty you right. know I think at the end of the day that's a big part of it too you just have to be honest and from my standpoint, if I'm screaming at a customer, boy, that's, that's a bad place to be in. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I can't remember the last time that happened to me, and, uh, and I'd be very disappointed in myself if I was doing that. <laughs>
0: Being in the restaurant business, uh, we work very strange hours, um, You know, nights, weekends, and of course, of course, Murphy's Law, something always breaks on a Friday night right in the middle of your busiest time. Yep. How critical is it that you find and you ask during the process, the sales process, about their working hours and what kind of support they have during the
1: hours of your business of operation? Yeah, that's key. Um, The, you know, bad things are going to happen. And like you said, typically they're going to happen at the worst moments. Part of pre-planning for that is a disaster recovery plan. And, you know, we always kind of took the task and up, Kind of give you the POS example, right? How can you make the system so redundant that no matter what happens, it can still function? And function might be processing a guest check, being able to pay the guest check, and print the guest check. Everything else might be down in the establishment, but if you pre-plan for worst-case scenario, then at least you can make sure that the restaurant's up and running. Um, a lot of folks out there have Monday through Friday 9 to 5, which, you know, in, in the full-serve restaurant business, um, that's not going to cut it, right? That's a seven-day-a-week business, and they're typically busiest days are Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So you've got to make sure as, a, as an operator that um, when you're vetting out uh, um, companies that you want to do business with, that they're matching the hours that you have available, um i think the other thing that's also really important is that as you look at uh, vendors that you're doing business with do they have a track record of being able to um, fulfill those hours background checks um, doing uh, calling some of their uh, references and then also calling some of their non-references right everybody knows who's doing business with who like you said it's a small community if they give you five references, call five others, right, to get the full picture. So,
0: of course, they're going to give you references. Obviously, that are going to give them a stellar uh, re-
1: uh, report. So. Yeah, and you'd be surprised. Sometimes they give you references, assuming you're never going to call them. So. Uh, interesting. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. So
0: now that i'm on the consulting side you know i'm I'm seeing some different things out there and as i'm going in and talking to some of the clients there's some big pieces that i i see being missed like uh, service level agreements and uh, master service agreements how
1: important is that in the discussion in the pre-sales process you'd be surprised how many people miss that in the pre-sales process it's something that i always kind of bring to the table because it's something you should be proud of right if if as you're selling a service if you know you've got a great company and a great culture and a great support, that's part of what you lead with. Um, and a lot of folks, a lot of folks today, depending on um, where they are in the in the segment, are looking at dollars only. And, you know, we used to have a saying when I was at Micros, the first time customer never bought Micros. They always bought something else. The second time they were in the market, they always bought from us mm. because… You got a product that could do what it was supposed to do you had slas in place you had 24 by 7 help desk you had local support uh, that could come out and take care of your system Uh, and we had a distribution system that we could overnight if we needed to and again this was micros back in you know uh, for about 15 years when we worked there but that was one of the things that we were very proud of and i think when you're working with vendors today and you ask those questions if you notice that the the vendor shies away or doesn't want to talk about that, the hairs on the back of your neck should go up a little bit. It should be a source of pride.
0: Well, you know, sometimes a vendor, and I've done this to vendors before, so a vendor will talk about their support, how quick their response time is to pick up the phone, and I will stop them right there, especially if I'm in the room with them and say, okay, hang on, let's uh, dial the phone number here and see yep. how long it takes for them to pick up. Um, I had a situation where instead of going to support, it ended up going to sales. They had screwed up their phone numbers, and the company didn't even know that was happening. It's kind of it was a little bit eye opening yeah. for them, but um,
1: you know, kind of caught them off guard on that that question and that process. And that happens a lot, especially in the SaaS based world today. Um, a lot of the SaaS based companies that have come up are a little immature in in their business model and don't really understand the support side of it. So a lot of the times you run into that, you know, where you're leaving a message or goes to the wrong mailbox. And it's, it's really, it's not on purpose, I don't think. I just think it's the maturity of the company.
0: Okay, let's go down another path that um, operators always think about, and that's yeah. value-added resellers. Is there an advantage for an operator to work with a value-added reseller versus a directly with a vendor now I realize some vendors out there only work through VARs but I've been in a situation where I've had a a VAR that has been a horrible representation for the product even though I love the product but you know should I have gone or can I get to directly to the vendor and work with them do you see problems with VARs out there And,
1: and is this a common story yeah, Skip, I think this is one area where we would disagree a little bit on. I'm a big fan of VARs. Okay. Um, but I think it has to be uh, specific to what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the values I think you get out of a VAR is you get local representation. Um, so you do have folks that you know live in the community, live in the area, that can service you and, and take care of you. And an escalation path so if that var is not necessarily doing what you need them to do you can always get to the corporate entity and or another var, right as you're working through that we all know there's there's relationships that go sour and and sometimes that's just a reality of business um but i do believe the var model is a good model um and you know i've i've run vars um, i've run reseller channels i've uh, worked closely with them on both um, as a VAR, but also direct as well and use them to offset some things that we needed to get done, additional services, um, uh, et cetera. And I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of it, um, and I can see really the value in a VAR. So everything you described about um, the value of
0: a VAR, being local, somebody that can service you immediately, I think that is the area that the VAR I was working with suffered. They did not have a local presence. Sure. They just happened to own a territory that you had to work through. So it really was not advantageous for us to work through the VAR. It, and we felt like a transaction. We didn't feel like a customer.
1: Yeah, and you know what? That kind of comes back to that research, right? Make sure that when you're working with a company, um, that those are part of the criteria you check off. You know, Is it local representation? And you're absolutely right. There's some companies that have VARs that have no local representation. That also have a model that they've oversaturated um, and over committed to a particular var, a territory that they just can't manage. Um, but just like you do on a product, you do the same thing with that var. Do your research, take a look at their references, make sure you understand who the representatives are. If they're flying in a sales rep <laughs> to talk to you, it's probably not a local. Now, I'm assuming that there probably should be a little
0: more due diligence from the vendor to properly vet out a VAR. There
1: should. And and the more mature companies out there, um, you're typically going to find that because if you're an aspirational brand, the VARs want your product. One of the things that I think uh, when you look at the VAR model that folks probably don't really know is that the good VARs are getting hit every day by 15 to 20 companies that want them to rep their product. My experience with the good VARs is they're incredibly picky about the products they take on. They do a long due diligence process before they will. So typically a lot of the products in the – and, you know, I'm kind of more looking at the POS side of the business, right, Right, which is my expertise – But um, the VARs that I've worked with on the POS side are phenomenal. And um, their um, structure and what they've built is really um, impressive. I'm sure they're being picky,
0: too, about which products they choose because if they take on that POS, they have to have a support team behind it, and they have to have enough volume in order to be able to make that a lucrative uh, decision
1: for them. Sure, and it's their reputation. You know, They don't want to put a product out in the marketplace that they can't stand behind.
0: Another interesting question from an operator's perspective, actually from a vendor's perspective, if a customer asks you when your end of quarter is, because I always used to do that, <laughs> when's your end of quarter? And then I really don't start negotiating my deal until that that, that end of quarter. Sure. Um, do vendors hate that?
1: Uh, it depends on the quarter <laughs> and how much you need to hit. <laughs> Sometimes a vendor will use that to their advantage. And... um you know, certainly that's a it's a public company kind of mindset, right? End of quarter, um, but from a vendor perspective, you've got um, you've got numbers you have to hit, and if you know that you can secure business for that particular quarter with a quarter end deal, it's worth doing. Um, you always hate to give up kind of the 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 margin, right? To do that. But it does hit the financial needs of the company that's looking to do mm-hmm. it in the quarter. Back from your
0: experience, I've seen some relationships sour. At what point is that relationship non-recoverable and you just
1: both sides just have to move on? In the short term or the long term? Well, both. So in the short term, um, I think un- untenable relationships happen um, when you have unreasonable people. Right. So if there's an expectation um, that's that's set improperly and or you have uh, a restaurateur, let's say, and I know this is going to be hard to believe, Skip, but some of them are a little nuts. <laughs> <laughs> they are not. Come on. <laughs> some of them not. You know, it's a small minority, but uh, and incredibly unreasonable. Um, at that point, it's untenable, you know, cut bait, move on um, in the long term, though. It's never unrecoverable. The, the reality is, and, and as we said in the beginning, people move around in this business, people go from one company to the other, and people evolve. You know, I've, I've been in situations where 20 years ago, I've met someone that we didn't have a good relationship with, and we were both young and, and kind of dumb, right? And a little new to the industry. 15, 20 years later, we're running into each other again, and we're doing business. Right. So on the long term, usually there's a, a a recoverable part of it. But in the short term, if that relationship goes sour and it's unrecoverable, move on.
0: So we're up here in Maryland today. We're actually recording this beautiful fall day. We don't. It's we gorgeous don't, out there. Tonight. It is. We don't get fall in Florida. So um, it's kind of nice to be up here this time of year. We're here at the Constrata um, home office. What made you come to Constrata? And, you know, I, I want you to talk about both the consulting side, because everybody knows consulting side just from what I've been talking about. It was a big jump for me to go from an operator to consultant. Uh, and I know what attracted me to that side. But we also have a services side. Maybe you can talk about uh, what your day-to-day really looks like and how those two teams work together. Sure. Um,
1: I think the the part that really got me... Um, is I love operations, you know. At my core, I'm an operations guy, um, and I love to build. I love to build companies. Um, and Rob kind of, you know, Rob got me and and um, multiple conversations, and uh, it's it is hard to say no to Rob sometimes. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> but he made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So um, and that that really kind of drove me to to take the position here. Um, but on the operation side, um, the, the service implementation, the project management, the successful install, the raving fans that you get from that has always been something that I've prided myself on. Um, installing systems and doing it correctly is an art. Um, and, um, there's a lot of folks out there that just don't know how to do it. Um, and, I'm fortunate in my career where I've had a lot of folks follow me. So I was able to bring some of the team that I've worked with over the years uh, with me, and we'll add some more folks to that. And you know, we kind of pride ourselves on the services, right? And I think what, what sometimes people don't realize is how important that upfront success is on an implementation. If you have a bad implementation, it can take you literally years to recover from, mm-hmm. so doing it right and doing it right the first time is a key part to your long term success and utilizing whatever software it is that you want to use um, on the consulting side, I, you know I love talking about the business, I love the technology side of it, I love working with with you and Toby, and that was a big selling point for me as well. Um, I've been on both sides, so I've been on the side of uh, of Toby and Rob, where I'm a vendor trying to uh, get in a deal. Uh, <laughs> yes. So I know what that's like, um, and I've gone through the RFP process multiple times. So lucky you! I know it's been fun, <laughs> <laughs> but that's really uh, what got me excited about coming here.
0: Interesting. Well, we're happy to have you aboard. Um, in, in about the same time that you came on board, too, I think there was some confusion. When we would talk to our consulting customers, they didn't know anything about our services division. It had a different name at that time. It was called Strata Bear. Right. And we've consolidated everything. Now we have Constrata Services and we have Constrata Consulting, which I think makes perfect sense. Customers are excited when we tell
1: them, hey, oh, by the way, you have a new POS? We can possibly help you implement that, you know? Sure, yeah. It's exciting. And I, I think one of the things that... um that really adds to that is just the institutional knowledge on the services side. It's not like we just install one POS or one PMS. We've got lots of institution knowledge on the best practices for any POS or PMS installs. And they're universal. And if you follow them, you really are going to have a good, uh, successful install.
0: Actually, I need to clarify for the audience. So on the consulting side, we don't push
1: or promote any one exactly. vendor or product.
0: <laughs> uh, we are we are vendor agnostic. Our customers make the decision. We present them with the information, the results from our research. They're the ones that make the decision. So I just want yeah, to clarify that. That is
1: a, a red line we don't cross. Yes.
0: Do you have any advice out there for an operator that's looking for a particular product? Um, if it's big enough of a deal, should that operator be meeting face-to-face with that vendor?
1: Yeah, if it's big enough for a deal, absolutely. Um, and do customer visits. Um, and also, go to the company's headquarters. See see what yes. they're all about. So it depends on the size of the deal, obviously. Um, but, you know, that's you're getting into a five- to seven-year relationship, right? Yes. Make sure you're getting into the right relationship, or it can cost everyone a lot of money.
0: We were recently had a consulting client that... They had a POS. I wasn't sure how valid that company was. So Toby and I flew uh, to that uh, POS company's headquarters. Sure. Make sure they were a legit company. Met with their leaders, looked at their roadmap, you know, really did our homework to make sure that they were a valid solution for another five, seven years. Sure,
1: which is exactly what, you know, a restaurant should do.
0: So for any vendor or suppliers out there that are looking to close a deal, what should they do and what
1: shouldn't they do to get a deal closed? And most importantly, ensure
0: a long, healthy relationship?
1: Yeah, I think it really starts with the needs analysis. Um, marry up your product to the needs of the customer. That should be like sales one oh one. If if your salesperson is not doing a true needs analysis, One of the misnomers about sales, I think, and I think it's important for vendors to realize is that sales is really a process of elimination, right? I start with a thousand potential customers. What I really want to do is narrow it down to the 200 that are really core to what my value prop is and what my offering is. I don't want to sell all thousand, right? I want to really sell to the, to the right customer that's gonna utilize the product I have, see the value of it, and at the end of the day is a referenceable customer. That's the goal of, of a sale, right, in a, in a vendor world. Um, and I think too many vendors don't really understand that and they, they miss sell And it's not, you know, it's not malicious. They just, they don't do the due diligence to make sure it's the sure, fit, right? Sure. And that's really how you grow your brand and your company.
0: Bob, thanks so much for joining the show today. Uh, It was a real pleasure to have you on. It's good to be face-to-face with you with this beautiful weather up here. Um, And I I look forward to our future um, and where this company is going to go. But uh, once again, thanks for joining, giving us the view and the aspect of what it looks like from a vendor side. It's always a conversation I wanted to have. Just never found that right person to have that conversation with. So you kind of like fell into the plate here.
1: Yeah, great. Skip, thank you very much. I I appreciate your time today and and, uh, and a big shout out to your audience and and, uh, looking forward to uh, more conversations like this. Well, that was fun
0: and informative. Now I know that vendors don't always look at us as a dollar sign. Also, if you listen closely, there were quite a few nuggets of gold there for future use when dealing and negotiating your next vendor contract. If you would like to reach out to me or the show and leave a comment, you can do so via everything social at Skip Kimple or everything at Constrata. This includes Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and TikTok. And as always, you can go to the website skipkimple.com for all of the archived shows going all the way back to episode number one, along with the show notes. You can also hear all the new episodes on the Constrata website at constrata.io. And if you want to drop me an email, do so at skip.kimple at constrata.io. Next week, our guest is Lee Gower, CTO at Dutch Brothers, which is a publicly traded company. We will talk about her joining the company last year as its first ever CTO, previously working at Blue Nile and T-Mobile. We will also discuss how Dutch Brothers is investing in technology to improve their customer experience on and off premise, advancing their company's rewards app, which by the way, just surpassed 4 million users, and her outlook on tech for beverage and drive-through only operations specifically. I can't believe another week has flown by and we are already in the middle of November. I have a feeling this week is going to fly by as well. So until next Tuesday, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay hungry, my friends.